0: Welcome,
1: back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this
0: is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we're talking about roll and rights. We're doing this in part because we think roll and rights are really interesting games that have fueled a lot of nuanced conversations on the show in the past, like when we covered Welcome To, or Cartographers, or talked about other roll and rights like Gonchan's Clever. But we're also doing this in part because we're hosting a Decision Space Jam, our first game design jam, uh, co-hosted by Jake, myself, and Aurora. And you can learn more about this Decision Space Jam by going to to decisionspacepodcast.com slash decisionspacejam. But essentially, there's a game design prompt, and listeners are encouraged, if you feel so inclined, to design your own roll-and-write based on uh, the constraints of that prompt. The deadline to submit is February 28th. Uh, And if you do submit, you have to give feedback and then you'll get feedback on your game as well. And we'll talk about all of the entries and especially probably the most the winning entries in a future episode of the show.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Brendan, I was just going to add everybody get up. It's time to slam now. We got a real
0: jam going down. Welcome to the Space Jam. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Well, anything else on Decision Space Jam before we uh, move along? Yeah, I mean,
1: I'm just so excited about like the enthusiasm for this. I think there's already 11 or 12 work in progress threads going on our Discord. Just so many tremendously creative ideas from folks. And the exciting thing is, it's a really accessible sort of entry way to get into game design. So, just want to encourage everyone to participate if you can, and, and even especially if you've never done something like this before.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, then, let's do it, Jake. Let's talk about rolling rights. I'm hoping this will also serve as, in part, I will say selfishly, as inspiration. I have a few different designs that I'm thinking of submitting to this decision space jam. Uh, And I kind of don't know what direction to go, but I thought most naturally in this conversation to start, we should start with a definition or try to of what is a roll and write game? What are we talking about today? And I think that Anytime we talk about genres, it's likely to get fuzzy. So maybe we can just talk about key things these games often share in common, knowing that there might be exceptions that fall inside or outside of that for any given reason.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. And we have a lot of great discussion in our Discord all the time about sort of defining categories for games. And I'm just going to be transparent and honest with you, Brendan, our listeners. That's not like the nuance between what is and is not a worker placement game or a rondelle game or a roll and write game is not necessarily the thing that I find like the most important and exciting. So I don't want to, you know, hang too fast to any of these given rules because there's going to be gray line areas all over the place. I already see them coming now. But for me, I think the key things with a roll and write game is you have a random input and generally we're going to be talking about rolling dice obviously it could be something else it could be flipping up cards whatever that can kind of still fit in here too um but i think the, the key thing is you're rolling dice and then you're taking those inputs to like permanently mark on something
0: kind of disposable in a way yeah Totally agree, Jake, that random inputs seem pretty essential here. I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like some randomizing event happens and then in a rolling rate on your turn, you respond to that in some way. You make yeah. some decision based on that input. That's like the core most important thing. And then like you said, I think for me... Often, always, that's accompanied in Roll and Write games with some sort of permanent decision that you're going to deal with the consequences of that decision in future turns. So to already get into an example, in Welcome to, you get the random input of cards being flipped over, you make a decision, you write a number down, and then that number being written down in one of your rows of houses in Welcome to dictates what other numbers you might want to come up in the future and write around it in the future. It's funny because I don't think that the permanent markings aspect necessarily has to be, you could have a roll and write with erasing, but it seems like almost always in these games, there is some degree of permanence to what's happening on the board. There's not often a huge component that's, okay, now we're going to erase everything you've done and start over from a blank space. It's about creating this sort of like permanent object that you're building over the course of play. That's what I was thinking too, because you know, a game that I think
1: is not a roll and write game that heavily features random input and then making decisions based on that is Castles of Burgundy, Mm. right? Right. I wouldn't say that's a roll and write game. And I think the biggest reason for that is just the fact that there's nothing like static that is kind of like remaining the same over the course of the game. Like you have a shifting market, like your board state is things are coming on and
0: going off all the time. I don't know. How do you square that one? It's so interesting because I never would have sort of considered Castles of Burgundy as like, it it could be adjacent to roll and write space. But now that you said it, I could see how it was. There's obviously the consequences, the fact that you need the tiles. So in that game, you're drafting the tiles and putting them on your board. So like an element of like, there's not a bunch of other auxiliary sort of components.
1: Like if we're talking roll and write, maybe it's as simple as that. Like you have two central components that you're random input generator and the
0: board and yeah. that
1: kind of has to be it
0: and i think that in some cases i was thinking when we were working on this definition right is that is there a need to say that the game should be light and i think we've seen examples of roll and write games that aren't necessarily that light games like twilight inscription is a heavy roll and write that gives each player four sheets or another game called hadrian's wall it's this big piece of paper that gives you lots of things to do those are somewhat heavier roll and writes. But I think in both those cases, I don't know for sure, but I think almost always there are a lot of other components like you said, Jake, which I think necessarily shapes the decision space because you're mostly as a player having to keep the rules, the rules of the game and what options are available to you in your head right? They're just on the, or written on the sheet in front of you. In Castles of Burgundy, tiles can come up that have certain rules associated with them that you can then go look up at that point in time. But roll and writes in general kind of have a more focused decision space where everything sits neatly and cleanly in front of the table. You The idea is typically like you can fully grok the rules before starting, which I know you would do with most games, but in a game like Castle's Burgundy, when you're playing a learning game, maybe you learn what specific tiles do as they come up, which I think necessarily confines the decision space of these games somewhat, even as they get heavier, just because you can't hide away rules on other elements that might come up. Yeah, I I really like that,
1: adding that sort of, there has, you know, by and large, talking about the majority of roll and write games, we're thinking of games that have just like two central components the board and your random input generator i think that fits i think one other thing that fits not in every case and i think you've just pointed out two examples where this is is not necessarily the case but in a classic roll and write i think when somebody's like this is a roll and write game another thing that that you would get the impression of is that there's roughly equal weight to the rolling and the writing Mm. you know like when you play a game like yahtzee Mm -hmm. It's like you roll the dice and then you write and it almost takes like about the same amount of time. I think when you get into a situation where you're kind of rolling the dice uh, and then play can like proceed around the table for several minutes, like in Mm. Castles of Burgundy. And it's like, okay, now I'll use these dice or whatever. That to me feels like we're straying outside of at least the mainstream of what we're generally consider the roll and write game. So I think that gets a little bit to the weight aspect of it too. Like typically these are are lighter things, but I think, you know, like the name roll and write, if somebody tells me a game is a roll and write game, I'm kind of expecting it to be like snappy and snappy on
0: both sides, the rolling and the writing. Yeah, I think that an example that comes up too, of other potential like markers of the genre are that oftentimes you're permanently marking on your own play space, right? It's my own sheet of paper that I'm writing on and no one else is gonna write on that sheet of paper. It's my own little puzzle that I'm trying to solve there's exceptions. Cartographers is a game where there's a light interaction with someone else drawing on your sheet. But for the most part, you're you're working in your own space. There's games that feel like roll-and-writes uh, and could maybe be done as roll and rights, or maybe originally were roll and rights, Like we covered Get On Board on this show, uh, which is a game that was first published as a roll-and-write and then reprinted by Yellow with a board and little pieces that you lay down. Uh, if that stays a, a roll-and-write, just by definition. I don't like you said Jake, I don't know how interesting that of a question that is, but when we were playing it, it definitely felt like a roll and write to me, even though it's a shared play space and even though we you technically we weren't marking anything, we were putting pieces, but I think it was so much designed with the ability to be printed that way in mind that it kind of still feels like a roll and write to me. Whereas other games like My City, a, a game with shared inputs, where are making permanent markings on a board by placing tiles to me feels slightly less like a roll and write because there's enough there's enough it's cumbersome enough that it doesn't feel like something you'd be asked just to do in paper though there is a roll and write version of that game that's pretty that's
1: fascinating to me because to me my city totally would fit into the flip and write genre yeah flip over a card place your thing you know it's i guess the diff the distinction between my city and my city roll and write is that my city has Tiles as an extra yep. component so that yep. i think that kind of brings us back to this core idea that you basically need to have it two components and that's basically it for most but not all roll and write games so yeah. I, I mean i think people that hopefully will give people a sense of what we're talking about and of course you know there are always going to be edge cases with all these rules so better not <laughs> to think too hard about it unless we just talk in circles for remainder of this podcast
0: so can I rattle off, Jake, some like key examples we'll probably discuss in this episode, and then we can kind of get in and talk about the types of decisions and mechanisms we often see used in these games, which I think will really be the heart of the episode. Before we do that, last thing, roll and write, not roll and choose. How does that strike you? Because
1: I was thinking this whole time, mm. I was like, what about can't stop? You know, that's like a roll and
0: choose game every yeah. time, but it is a distinction because it's not permanent in the same way. Yeah. You're, I think that that's a great point and actually a perfect example of why we're, I'm saying like a permanence to what you're marking feels yeah. important because can't stop. The reason why it wouldn't work very well on paper is because all of your progress can get erased. So right. it lacks that sort of permanence of action. It's that a random it and a
1: permanence thing. Yeah. It's like really what we're implying by role and what we're and implying right. by right. Yeah. Perfect. We got it. We got there. Just okay, 12 great. minutes into the podcast.
0: <laughs> Yay. So some examples that we were thinking about when we were coming up with sort of those genre markers are things like Yahtzee, which is, feels like the original Roll and Write. Also Welcome To, Cartographers, Trails of Tucana, Railroad Inc., Next Station London, a game that won the Stability DRs recently, Voyages, uh, a cool another pathing Roll and right where you're sailing a little ship along a hexagonal grid, uh, Rolling Realms, a uh, modular Roll and Write with lots of, largely driven by numeric puzzles that Jake's actually designed an expansion for, which is pretty cool. Gongshan's Clever, another sort of numeric based roll and write that's all about combos. Quicks, another sort of originator of the modern roll and write movement that I know Jake is really fond of. So if you've heard of some of these games, that's great. And if you haven't, as we get into talking about examples, we'll talk about them a little bit more.
1: Awesome. That sounds great, Brendan. Can't wait.
0: So I think that for me, Jake, one of the first things that came to mind, even though it's not one of the primary categories, is timing. This idea of when the game is going to end or uh, not always being clearly defined, right? So in Welcome 2, all players are have these sort of three rows of, of houses that you're trying to add numbers to to represent that they've been built. I think the values are between one and 13 or something, uh, and they have to be in ascending order on your sheet. So you're sort of, the game clock is tied to when, a, when players can't take a certain number of actions, uh, then the game will end. So players have this ability to take greater risks or fewer risks, depending on where they're putting certain numbers, of if they'll finish certain goals in time. Next Station London is another game that sort of does this, but it does it, Jake. It's another flip and write game where you're not rolling dice, but you're instead of flipping cards that have symbols on them. You're trying to connect those symbols using different rail lines uh, on a map of London. But that is done in four different rounds where you have four differently colored pencils that you're using to draw your routes. And then the deck is made up of two types of cards, some blue cards and some red cards. And then when all of the red cards come out, that's when the round ends. So there's a little bit of uncertainty around how long a given round will be. So you don't always know what your optimal decision of, okay, this is every input that will come. So here's my exact plan I'm going to lay out. You can't do that that much. So you can't fully puzzle it out. Yeah, I I agree.
1: I think Timing is one of the more interesting things that a game like Welcome 2 plays in. And it really comes through, I think, even more strongly for me in the just classic, super simple roll-and-write games like Quicks or another one in that kind of family is called 21. And those are two of my absolute favorites. Uh, and both of them have a, a numeric puzzle. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means later where you're just trying to basically mark off as many boxes as you can in a row. But both games give players a sense of agency over when the game will end. And every single decision you're making over the course of the game is tied to what your personal understanding of the game state is. Mm. And basically the only thing that changes from one person's game state to the other is you know how much time you kind of think is left. In the game. Uh, So, an example for that is in this game, you're always having to count up in an ascending order. And, or I guess, sorry, it's in two of the rows you count up, and two of the rows you count down. But if you roll a five and I have already crossed off a two on that row, I have to decide do I want to cross off this five now or wait and hope that a three or a four will get rolled over the remainder of the game? Now, if this is the last turn of the game, of course, I'm going to cross off that five. If I feel like this game still has 20 rolls left in it, maybe I hold off, you know, and those are the kind of kind of the meaty timing decisions uh, that comes through so strongly in those games.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Uh, which give I think importantly too these timing elements make the end of roll and rights typically pretty exciting. If if it's not completely known what the end condition will be, you have a little bit of a a more of uncertainty of will I fully accomplish my plans. A lot of times, roll and rights because of what we're going to talk about in the next category, spatial puzzles, I think have a a strong sense of planning. You have your whole board in front of you. It becomes clear at some point what your plans will be. Uh, So the tension then comes from not what how can I get the most points on a given turn? A lot of times, like, the path is kind of laid out. You know what you need. And the tension is, will I get what I need before the game ends? That's not always the case. That's not how these games have to be set up, how they can be done. But it's a common way that you feel. So this is especially common, like I said, in these spatial puzzle games. So these are games like Cartographers, which is a spatial puzzle using uh, polyomino puzzle pieces that you're drawing onto your board, uh, or not even polyominoes. In some cases, it's just, like, weird sort of sets of cubes that you're going to add to a grid i believe like there's diagonal ones in that game there's spatial puzzles like railroad inc which are pathing games you're trying to create paths to connect different locations on your board to one another or potentially different outputs in railroad inc you're drawing both train tracks and roads so it gives you these two overlaid puzzles to be juggling or other spatial puzzles like trails of tukana again another pathing game where you are trying to connect certain locations as sort of um dictated by these shared objectives among players uh or like i could keep going this feels to me like it's kind of the new school of roll and write games where
1: you know we had yahtzee for a really long time Second. Uh, and, right i'm just saying like you know that's just kind of like the classic roll and write maybe the first roll and write style game and you know it was just numbers right you're just doing numbers and you know a couple years back a few years ago now there's sort of this renaissance of rolling right games there are all kinds of publishers all kinds of new designers doing things and it feels like a lot of these kind of like new school design there are still some that definitely play in that classic space like welcome to and quicks and stuff like that but it feels like when i see this it feels kind of like the new a new wave of roll and write games. And a lot of them really did appear to gravitate towards this spatial uh, kind of tetris and also pathing puzzle
0: games. Why do you think it is that this seems to fit so well with the roll and write genre? I think there's two reasons. One is I think it's really cool when there's this like mimetic quality of what you're doing. So what I mean by that, right, is like in cartographers, it's a game about making a map where you're making a map and making a map is something you draw on paper. So it thematically links really well with what you're sort of simulating that you're doing and what you're doing, right? I think it's similar for things like Trails of Tucana. That's another map-making game. Railroad Inc. is kind of a map-making game. It just seems to fit with the genre somewhat. And then I think it also works well because... Of that planning that I'd mentioned, Jake, it's another way to sort of have whenever you have a game that's a spatial puzzle or a path, it, it's constrained and restricted what your options might be in the same way that like, oh, I'm going to add, I'm going to do a little numeric puzzle uh, right. that's going to like constrain the player's options and give you varying degrees of risk and a fairly easy way to engage with. And then I think, why did it become popular? I think some players are more likely to want to engage with a spatial puzzle than a numeric math puzzle. Right. It's easier for me to maybe say, hey, mom, do you want to play Railroad Inc? than hey, mom, do you want to play Welcome to where we're adding these numbers on these houses? And, and that's totally.
1: Of yeah. yeah, that's so interesting. It It's funny because it really is in both cases. You're very much playing with the same timing type of puzzle. And it feels like the spatial and pathing ones are just abstracting the purely mathematical puzzle like what are the odds of rolling a five out of these four dice in the next three turns of the game
0: yeah totally okay and i think jake like you just said so i i kind of want to do two categories here there's like the spatial games overall where there's a spatial component and then the pathing subset of those games so that's games like railroad inc or trails of tucana or avenue that's a game by the person who designed trails of tucana that actually the two people they did that first, or Voyages, where you're literally making paths on your board. It's like a whole subgenre of this subgenre of spatial puzzles, the pathing game, that I think are like this important subgenre of roll and write games. Like at this point, when someone says, Do you want to play a roll and write game? There's this new roll and write game that came out. I might even be at the point of thinking framed as like, is this a pathing roll and write game? a spatial roll-and-rate game, or is there something else going on, you know? Right, or are we just doing the numbers? <laughs> or are we just doing the numbers, or something else? I, I think there's other types of roll and rights that can exist. Totally. Um, but these seem to be the most common ones. Okay, another jo- type of mechanism that I think we often see in these games goes back to Yahtzee, and that's set collection. So Yahtzee basically says, okay, here's these sets that you can make. Make them in the most efficient way given the dice that you have and the re-rolls that you get to use. In the case of Yahtzee, the sets are poker hands. So, it's using poker hands as a shorthand for creating a large group of sets with values that you might have. Uh, but then other roll and rights will use set collection too. Trails of Tucana uses set collection in a way by wanting you to connect certain symbols on your boards. You're collecting little sets by connecting paths between them. Welcome to has set collection in a way by. Asking you to collect sets of houses of different values, uh, and you are of groups of houses of different values, and then also of like sets of pools or sets of parks. And I want to come back and talk about the welcome to set collection in a little bit when we talk about this next one, which is tracks. Well, tracks and before
1: we jump off of tracks, okay, it's just wild to me to call Yahtzee a set collection game. I guess I can see that, but when I think of Yahtzee, decision space, it's a push your luck game to me for sure almost purely and there i mean sure there are sets right you're trying to do different things but i feel like set collection It to me it feels like in in, in all these examples right yeah. that's kind of like an auxiliary objective that's happening there but i don't i wouldn't say the core of yahtzee is set collection or the core of welcome to is set collection it's like yeah you're trying to like you know get that that's like a way that you know, the designers almost adding a little bit of kind of like Euro point salad mechanism to the top of Welcome to.
0: For sure. I don't think it's the heart of the puzzle, but I do think it evokes some of that. Like even in Welcome to Jake, the pools have triangular numbers, just like Colorado's yeah, set collection feels has good. triangular numbers. Totally. Yeah. It,
1: so it feels good, but that I don't think I'm like orienting my decision space around that as much. That's just kind of the reward for doing a good job at like the timing And numeric puzzle, and gives you something
0: else to consider. Yeah, yeah. I would say
1: I do think it's interesting to point out, though, that now that I think about it, push your luck is something we so often see associated with dice games, but it actually feels really rare in the push your luck genre, or sorry, in the roll and write genre. I don't feel like we see a lot of push your luck games, and I think that's because sort of the market for these games, and you know, the design trends of these games, is to use shared input. Right, so like right. In welcome to you flip something up, everybody writes it on your board, and there's like some push your luck elements inherent to that, right? Like if I'm foregoing using a number in quicks or welcome to, like I'm I'm you know risking that something better is gonna come up and it might not. So I am always taking a gamble in some way, but it's not that pure push your luck of like oh crap I might bust uh, yeah. if if something doesn't come up and i think that's because simultaneous play is so common in these games and that can be tricky for push your lock totally
0: i will say sometimes you get feelings of that in this genre too though in trails of Tukana, the game where you're trying to sort of connect by different terrain tra- types this whole map and you know the number of cards of each terrain type that are in the deck sometimes you'll sort of be presented an option where you're like oh there's only If this card doesn't come out of the deck, I won't get to make this connection. Should I risk it? You'll get a similar feel in the type of decision you're making, the flavor, but it's not the same sort of press your luck as a game like Can't Stop, where you're literally saying, like, do I keep going? It's more like, will the outcome come or will it not?
1: I would say the trade-off between some points now and the potential for more points later Yeah, that could go wrong is very common in this genre. Yeah,
0: totally. Okay, so then the next sort of thing that we see as a sort of sub sub genre is just the importance of tracks in this genre. So games like Ganshan's Clever, which literally has tracks that you're trying to fill out. uh, And if you get to certain sort of spots in those tracks, sometimes you'll get bonus moves. Bonus moves are another type of sort of sub-mechanism that we've seen in a lot of these games. Like, accomplish this, and then you get to do a free a free bonus action of your choosing that gives you some extra flexibility. Other examples of tracks are sort of games like Welcome 2 which I alluded to earlier that have the little value for real estate that you can move up. So you can make the sets that you're collecting more valuable based on which types you want to be more valuable. There's this little mini game puzzle around putting up fences between your houses to create little sets of houses. Uh, so that's something I think tracks make a lot of sense in the space just because it's easy to mark off tracks. It's easy to sort of track progress by, by marking on a track.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's familiar to Modern board game players too, right? Yeah. You move up a track. We cross certain thresholds. You get an extra little action. I think, uh, and there's kind of like another subgenre here of track games that are combo games, right? Mm-hmm. So Donjon's yeah. Clever is a great example of that. As you're going up the track, really, the game is about not just going up tracks, but kind of hitting marks hitting benchmarks on the track at the right time so that you can do crazy combos, right? I yep. go up this track, which allows me to write something else over here, which allows me to complete this, you know, subsection of this box puzzle, which lets me do something else over here. And there's a bunch of games like that. Let's see the Rajas and the Ganges dice game is totally combo-rific roll and write game. I, I think the fleet dice game, I, though I haven't played it and three sisters dice game. Yeah. I know those two are, are really popular and also uh, versions of this, you know, combo rific sort of track game.
0: Yep. Okay. And then finally, uh, I think another, social deduction, right. Yeah, social deduction roll right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, we could, we could. Uh, there's the numeric puzzles that we've been mentioning and alluding to. I just want to be sure to say that one. Uh, so that's games like Welcome 2 or Quicks or Gone cover, where you're actually writing numbers on your board. And oftentimes where those numbers go uh, relate to numbers you've already written. And there might be uncertainty about re- what numbers you'll get to write in the future. Uh, so in Welcome 2, that's you're flipping cards that literally have values on them. In Quicks, you're rolling dice and adding those values to your board in certain colors those sorts of things
1: yeah and for whatever reason i really like these games i think they tend to be you know and it's not just you know some of the other games we talked about can fit in here too like ganshan clever clever that's that's so clever also fits in here too though there's a bunch of different tracks it's a very much a numeric puzzle and i think what i like about these games is it you know it takes away that abstraction right You know, you're really playing with just kind of known probabilities, and I think it makes it it's interesting. It's because you mentioned earlier that you know, welcome to can be less accessible to some people because it's just pure numbers. You're not like doing a map or or something that's like more fun thematically. But I think it's also more accessible to people who are outside of our hobby uh, and, and kind of used to playing games like I don't know other map based games or whatever. Because these games feel more like Yahtzee, right? And more similar to kind of like the Progenitor and sure, people that sure. are just non-gamers are like Z. And I think so for that reason, Quicks has been really popular uh, with my family and kind of one of the most successful games for me just to introduce to people who are outside of our hobby just because of the accessibility of it. It's so light. And, you know, like something like my dad would say, like, I don't like games with special powers. It's like great. <laughs> no special powers here, right? We're just doing the numbers. And I think there's a real kind of accessibility appeal to that too, for some people. To
0: just doing the numbers, just doing the numbers. In life, okay. Uh, the final sort of common mechanism that we see in these games is a way to add a little bit of interaction while still allowing everyone to work on their own puzzle and not be interacting with each other's puzzles directly. So, what we see in a lot of these games are shared goals. Uh, so you have shared randomized goals like in welcome 2 there's you can play with a sort of variant where you deal out a few cards that give you certain collections of houses that you want to build Uh, and whoever gets does that first gets a certain number of points and then everyone else who accomplishes it gets a lower number of points trails of tukana literally has that same system but it's about connecting certain locations that are variable the first person gets a certain number of points the second gets uh, less what, next Station London has a set of variable goals that both players are going for that give you sort of push the decision space in a certain direction that time. It might be you have to cross the the river, the Thames in the middle of the board six times and you need to make eight stations that connect to two train lines, something like that, that kind of give you something to look towards and focus on that everyone is doing in a given play. Yeah, agreed it's in,
1: I think I'm interested in talking a little bit more, maybe, maybe now or maybe as we move down a, around kind of like interactivity in these games in the way that designers seek to make roll and write, which is, you know, inherently a solitaire puzzle interactive. And I think one of just the easiest ways, you know, you can just throw it on top of your game. Almost any game is just saying like, OK, but whoever does this thing first gets a few bonus points and then all of a sudden, boom, it's not solitaire anymore even yeah. if every other aspect of the game is.
0: I feel like one of the big reasons why these games end up being, in some ways it strikes me, Jake, that roll and write games and the, the genre have developed in part because of the publishing sort of reasons that people maybe started putting roll and write games out and also the marketing reasons. So one big appeal of early roll and write games and sort of the marketing push behind them was, these are games you can play with up to 100 people or any number of people. You can They fit any player count which makes them really appealing and a huge part of accomplishing that. Like Welcome 2 is a game that I remember when Shut Up and Sit Down covered it when it first came out, really highlighted the fact that you could play with lots of people. Uh, I actually later played that a game of that at a conference with them with around 100 people in a room, which was a really cool experience. Um, so it was part of that early idea. And I think if... If those games become if Rolling Rights were increasingly interactive, it's much harder to have that scalability. Yeah. Even if you say just like do it with your neighbor, okay, then we need a we need a circle that it can accommodate that many people.
1: It's really interesting on the marketing note. Uh, I noticed that there's a, a Rolling Realms fan page on Facebook. I think yeah. Stonemeyer Games creates a fan page for like all their games. And Jamie plays game of Rolling Realms live weekly you know, takes like 20 minutes or whatever. He goes live on video and plays a game of Rolling Realms and invites everyone on that page to participate too. So it's a way for him as like a business, right? Yeah. As a company to interact with, you know, his fans and play a game with them, which is a really cool opportunity. I mean, you know, how 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 else would you get the opportunity to play a game with a publisher or a designer or whatever, in uh, here, you can just so easily say, "Like I'm playing this right now." Feel free to hop in,
0: right? Which would be really hard to do with a game like I don't can't know. do that with Scythe, <laughs> right? Exactly, or yeah. you know, Babylonia. I can't just play from from my from my house and you play from your house. We need a shared board between us. Um, so yeah, I think so. Another thing is the paper makes these games accessible and a little bit easier to print when you can put a game sheet on a piece of paper. Uh, I think oftentimes roll and write games, part of the appeal is these are cheaper games, more affordable games that are are mobile that you can play almost anywhere. Um, so when there's not a large shared board between us that we can both reference all of a sudden the game is immediately going to be take on a flavor that's a little bit less interactive because we're not playing in the same space. We just have a smaller sheet in front of us that we're mostly aware of what's happening on that sheet. So it, it sort of narrows the room for potential interaction. If I have a, if we get to the point where, okay, the game that we're designing, has everyone has a sheet in front of them, then it opens up a venue of, okay, what type of interaction could you have? Oh, I could pass my sheet to the person left of me and they could draw on it. So we see that mechanism come up in Cartographers where you want this like little bit of a flare of interaction and, oh, I don't want the other player to be able to plan perfectly. So I'll have one of the other players basically adjudicate and place a, a monster on their board that that they couldn't foresee where it was going to go. Um, and I think that that makes a ton of sense. They, they don't have to be this way. You could obviously design a, a highly interactive roll and write where everyone was drawing on the same board. But then I think you get to the realm of, is this the best genre to be designing that type of game in? Maybe there's a good way to do it. But a lot of the ones that we've seen be successful so far focus on these more multiplayer solitaire type
1: puzzles yeah it's it's really interesting we saw that question come up in our discord recently like are there any roll and write games that have people playing in a shared game space and there i think there are like edge cases of it
0: yeah get on a, board a, does
1: that get on board does that push uh, a push your luck game that i love called claim it is almost like this uh it's not a full-on roll and write you're like putting pieces down onto the board in a shared way i mean can't stop gets pretty close to it as well though we already talked about it kind of falls just outside of the confines of this and i wonder if you're right that just as these games get designed in development it's like okay wait why are we all huddling around this like tiny sheet of paper wouldn't this be better as just like a board right we can all see yep and so yeah you know i wonder how many games i'm sure there are games i would imagine there are games out there that started as this idea. Uh, that end up getting developed away from it.
0: And I think a huge part of that is to some extent people, one of the real fun Aspects of the genre and what people have come to expect is I get to work on my own thing. No one's going to mess with me. It's almost become a genre for people who want to work on their own puzzle and not have other people messing with their puzzle, Uh, which goes all the way back to Yahtzee, right? Like, I'm just making the decisions on my turn. What's going to happen? No one can mess with me. The only thing messing with me is the dice. And I have to do my best to, to navigate that not the other players.
1: One thing that's really interesting about uh, 21, a game I referenced before, uh, it's it's a shared input game, but it still has a active player that rotates around the table, which eliminates the ability to play up to a hundred people. I think it plays sure. like five, but the, the only choice the active player gets to get is to re-roll the dice that everybody's mm. going to use as their shared input, which totally changes the decision space in a really yeah. interesting way as that timing puzzle of the whole game still exists, but also a miniature version of the timing puzzle of like, when is it getting back to my turn? Because on my turn, I have a lot more agency over the outcome of the dice and what's going to get rolled. So that's kind of a cool interactive element, right? Where I'm, and I could also look at other people's boards and just be like, Oh, you really need this green six. So I'm going to reroll
0: them. Totally. Yeah, no, that's really cool.
1: So yeah, it's like, I think interactivity exists in these games, but it's usually best if handled very lightly. Yeah, You know, like a highly, highly interactive roll and write game, I think kind of gets away from you're saying from kind of the strengths of the genre and starts getting the territory of maybe this would be better handled in a different type of game.
0: I think too, Jake, what you mentioned just then was that we haven't explicitly said, but we've kind of hinted at, is one of the strengths of Roll and Write games is that you play them simultaneously, typically. You have the shared input that you all care about. You look at it, then you look at your own board and see what you're doing. So there's not a lot of downtime while playing these games, typically, right? Right. You.
1: That's the you, modern innovation
0: from Yahtzee. Right, and I, yeah. And
1: why I don't really, why Yahtzee is fine, you know, I'd play a little Yahtzee, Game Boy thing in the back of the car or whatever, yeah. and that was fun, but I don't really want to return to the days of playing, like, Yahtzee around the table and,
0: like, waiting for somebody else to take their turn. Yeah, we can all turn. take our turns at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Let's... let's all be engaged while we play. Yeah. Totally. I think that's another huge part of the low interaction is that it accommodates that sort of simultaneous play. Um Okay, so if this low interaction we've covered is one of the things that really affects the feel of roll and write games. We covered some of the other types of puzzles, which certainly affects the feel. But I think the, uh, the other thing that most affects the feel of these games and their decision space is the type of input mechanisms you use. So we want to talk about that, right? Dice give you a set number, a set, set expectations of what values will come out. If you're rolling 1d6, your expected result is... On average, right? You you know what that's going to be. You have a three, one six right? chance. <laughs> three, right? Three point <laughs> five is the expected value. <laughs> of rolling a die. But then you have a one six chance of a one, two, three, four, five, or six of coming up, right? And yes. you know that if you have right. two, then you know two dice that you're rolling. You know you have a, a bell curve. You have think, a
1: yeah. And we need to thank settlers of Catan for helping mm. everybody to understand exactly how that bell curve works. Right.
0: And that's be explicit, right? If you have two dice, your your chances, the most common value you're going to roll is a seven. And you're very unlikely to get two twelves or to get a 12, two sixes, and to get a two, two ones. But you, the key thing is it's really clear what your probabilities are. And they're probably going to be consistent throughout the game, right? On turn one, you're going to have, because of the way the dice work, exactly the same chance of rolling a two as you will on turn 10. It's just right. That's set with and, cards.
1: In, I say in quicks, when you're filling out your row, skipping the two and the three to place a four, that's okay. Skipping the seven to put down the like the eight, really have to think hard about that because it's like, you just know that the seven is coming out sooner rather than later.
0: Right. Totally. And then with cards, obviously one thing that can happen there, is because there's only a certain number of values printed on those cards, if it's values that are being flipped or maybe if it's certain symbols that are being flipped like in welcome to you know that once you've seen them if you don't pick them you're not going to see them again there's a finite amount it's not like there's a a die a die with a pool symbol on it that could be rolled five times in a row you know there's only a certain number of pool cards in the deck so once they're gone they're gone so it gives you a little bit more of a tightened uh sort of decision space where you can both plan for what you've seen and what you expect because you know eventually if you haven't seen something it will probably come up depending on the mechanisms of the game but it just gives you that slightly different flavor yeah yeah it's so interesting like
1: i the the dice is makes they work almost the same right like with welcome to if you go all the way back as one of our first episodes we did what was so interesting about that game is the cards are like the deck of cards actually is crafted in such a way as to represent the dice
0: right but meaning there's like a bell curve of
1: values it's made yeah exactly but it's not made explicitly clear yeah you know in the game it doesn't tell you like there's this many of this card it just happens so it's like intuitive to players understand but still abstracted so i think you kind of get back to what we were talking about before where it's a lot of times like the more kind of like thematic versions of these games are still operating in a very similar space. They're just abstracting
0: it a little bit. Totally. But a key difference there is because of the way Welcome Two works, it sort of assures that the distribution of values in your game will be a bell curve and you're not likely going to have many outliers. What matters in that game is do the values that are less likely to come up, come out at the same time. These are presented with a few options or at different times versus when you're rolling just rolling the dice in the same number of randomized occurrences you could have a way higher number of expected unexpected twos which would break a game like welcome to it just wouldn't work as well because or, you
1: yeah i would say or if anybody's ever played Catan, can attest to is like are these dice weighted or what we keep rolling threes and brendan's getting all the bricks like this is right. unbelievable
0: where's the seven yeah when is the yeah. seven gonna get rolled yeah which should be the most common I think cards, for that reason, Jake, when cards are used as an input mechanism, you often get a little bit more of a clear planning because you know what's likely in the deck, at least if the deck's designed that way. A game like Trails of Tucana, it encourages the player to sort of think, okay, what terrains have I not seen yet? How can I set up this decision to set up future decisions? Whereas with dice, there's just a little bit more uncertainty. So you're often playing the game as... uh, The game takes on a more tactical feel, typically. What's the best move I can take on this turn? Because... Well, just see what happens next turn and then take the best turn I can take next turn. And obviously there's still planning involved there. Um, but I think in general, that's how those two things kind of diverge.
1: Yeah. And another advantage to cards is just that they can like communicate a lot more information sure. succinctly. It's It's been interesting in our design jam, our space jam to see kind of the way people are, skirting around the limitation of using two D6 of having like, you know, a one represents like all this complicated stuff. Yeah. You know, so now you're like, you know, look at the dice, have to go consult the chart and you know, whatever, which works, but you know, it's it makes you think like in that game design, if cards Maybe, were an option, they probably would go with them. Sure. Exactly.
0: Yeah, no, completely. And then obviously you could have a roll and write game that has another input mechanism for randomizing input. Uh you could have a bag that you're all collaborative collaboratively building and then you're pulling resources out of that bag to be your shared inputs on a future turn i think we haven't seen these as often for reasons we've already sort of laid out but there's probably fruitful design space for like this is a roll and write game that's not dice or cards it's something else entirely and where the mechanisms really tie directly into whatever that hook is about what the the new input mechanism is
1: i just invented bobbing for apples the pull and write game
0: <laughs> there's symbols written on the apples and you bob and see what that's comes right out. Yeah, yeah and if you don't even get anything you you just skip your turn that's
1: right yeah nice pretty good game
0: yeah yeah totally okay. it definitely changes the feel it's a, mem- a much mem- wetter experience
1: it's a mem, mem- non memotic game <laughs> <laughs> memetic game memetic game
0: <laughs> because it's an apple bobbing game where you're actually about bobbing for apples where you're actually bobbing for apples. That's right. That right yeah, now. okay, cool, cool. Okay, great. <laughs> I think do you have anything else Jake on sort of the different feels of the different flavors of input randomness?
1: I just invented also fish right. <laughs> Where you fish and then you write down the, the size and weight of your fish and i just also realized that all fishing competitions are roll and write games
0: <laughs> oh my god now we're really stretching the definition. sports are games
1: brendan so i'm trying to tell you okay why won't anyone
0: get on board i think i just proved it definitively taxes the roll and write game okay I think other cool things about this genre again it sort of uh, one thing I love is when you play you're left with this unique artifact of of your play that's something rare that we kind of see we rarely see that with other board games because oftentimes you just clean the board game up and put it away but I think roll and write games oftentimes will lean into this and sort of say make it personal make it yours this is a a cool little world you're making and cartographers you're drawing a little map put put lots of love into how you draw on them and I think that this is an important to the game experience, but it is important to the play experience and the type of flares that might be attracted to the genre. Sort of having a little bit of room for self-expression of like, what does this board look like when Jake does it? What does this board look like when Brennan does it? Totally.
1: It was really fun when we did a little bit of cartographer- Prep in our discord and we were playing asynchronously online people were like screenshotting their boards and like filling it in with you know on their on their phone or whatever or their computer yeah it was really fun just seeing how different everyone's boards looked uh doing it that way even if it was kind of a pain in the ass it was just fun to see i think that also even if it's not drawing a picture like even if it's you know yahtzee there's something kind of nice about you know, just having like these artifacts, it's like keeping your score sheet, right? And and sometimes people who, you know, play uh, Cascadia a hundred times, right? And m- you might want to like keep some of those score sheets or in the box, or keep all your score sheets in the box. So you can kind yeah. of like look through them, and it's nice to open the box and see like, oh, we played this like a year ago, and this is what the scores were, or whatever. Uh, and in roll and write games, right? The score sheet is the game. Sure. So you, uh, so yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have them. And and I, I think, I think it's a great point. Definitely a, a strength
0: of the genre. One advantage. of the things that ties into too, is a lot of times roll and write games, I think because of the random inputs kind of encourage high score chasing and there's different ways that they can do this, but by leaving an artifact to play that you might want to keep around my trails of two of box has every sheet. Maya and I have ever played, uh, which also include the scores written on them, is that we can go back and see like, was this a particularly high scoring game for us? What's the highest score we've ever gotten? And it's one of the exciting things about playing your and right? Is to see like, am I going to play a more perfect game? Can I beat the highest score I've ever gotten before? It has a little bit of the like classic video game, like high score chasing, but within the board game genre that I think is fun. And there's a degree oftentimes of both If I get better at this game, I will score higher. And also, I need the input randomness to give me a perfect game plus my skills. And then I'll just have this like uber score. And that can be exciting when you see that sort of game come into play and you know you played it well enough that you got this like super high score.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't, you know, I always say that. I'm not really big on solo games, but the solo game that I've definitely played the most is Ganshan's Clever. So I would just play that on like a, a plane flight, you know, and just play it like 20 times in a row, just trying to, you know, purely solo, just trying to get the highest score that I possibly can. And it's really fun.
0: I think for me, Jake, with the I I agree. For me, an interesting thing with this type of high score chasing is I find when I'm first learning, I don't really engage with it at all. When I'm getting better at the game, I start to really care because the my score ends up being feedback on how I'm doing in terms of the decisions that I'm making. And then once I reach a certain skill floor in terms of competency, right, where like I'm ninety percent as good at the game as I'm ever gonna get, all of a sudden I start to care way less about my score because what oftentimes happens in these games is what starts to matter more than your skill is where your input's strong enough that you're going to get a, a really high score this game or a more average score so then all of a sudden the excitement of high score chasing kind of falls out because so then i'm just like this what the, the dice didn't roll right this game so i guess i could play again and see if i get a high score again right but it has like diminishing returns oftentimes based on the input, depending on the sort of how much randomness and how much I can plan, which is both an upside and a downside of that sort of appeal of this aspect of Roland rights. And I think a lot of yeah. people feel that way.
1: I think I think you're totally right. I, I completely agree. And, you know, I think that's why it's good that there's like four versions of Ganshan Clever, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which, which is just because, you know, if you play the game a hundred times and get tired of it, that's not a failing of the game, right? That's actually yeah. like a massive success of the game. Uh, and also it's okay to then say like, okay, you know what? I've learned this puzzle to the extent that I ever will. And I want to try a different puzzle now. If if you're somebody who kind of cares about that variety. Yeah. And I, I just want to put a finer point on it that I think a strength of this genre in general is that they make good solo games. I see just because of my... Uh, experience designing a rolling realm, rolling realms, realm expansion. I've been on that page, you know, just seeing if anybody's like posting about you know my game, or the Cities, ones I designed, yeah, right? Processing, yeah, exactly. But it's you know you also see people being like at my son's swim meet, and they're just have the you know rolling realm thing yeah. going or whatever, and that feels like ex- accessible in a way that a different solo game is not, you know, I, if you're at like a sporting event and you've got, I don't know, your void fall game set up on a table in the hallway, it'd be kind of like, what are you yeah. doing? Right. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but if you're just sitting at a, you know, on the, on the bleachers and you've got, you know, your whole game on the folder in your lap or whatever, while you're waiting for your kids event to go, that feels like totally passable in our culture and not that anyone should ever be ashamed or embarrassed about playing games but you still might feel odd or get odd looks if you were you know doing that you know or playing a, a bigger game like with a board
0: and it's just easier to move a little roll and write quickly pack it up than it would be to move a big game in a big box and all that right you know? with different
1: components yeah. and stuff so i, I think there's a, a big advantage here that they work great solo and just like the accessibility of how easy they are to get played and you know they take five to ten minutes often. to play a whole game of which is huge for gaming on the go or in unlikely settings when you just happen to find yourself with a small pocket of time
0: totally i think because of the the high level of randomness in these games oftentimes they end up being shorter we know that as players we have a higher appetite for really random experiences if they don't take too much time because it doesn't make our decisions feel kind of worthless uh in a way like if you play a a three-hour game and it all comes down to are the dice going to roll in the right way at the very end depending on the game sometimes that can be a really exciting end or it can all it could also feel like oh what am i doing nothing none of the decisions i'm making really matter uh, but i think in roll and write games one of the benefits of that for me jake and something i love about this genre is a lot of the times the high points are about the tension around will my plan come to fruition right uh, i know what the optimal moves here would be the optimal outcome is it going to happen in the final third of the game? It, it leads to these exciting conclusions that give you memorable moments or uh, exciting failures that are give you memorable moments, too, as another player just squeaks ahead out of you uh, in front of you. Oh, and that's another thing is because of the shared inputs, these games can often feel really fair right? If Jake and I are playing with a a symmetric board and we have shared symmetric inputs, it's nice feedback if Jake beats me that Jake did better than me. He earned the win. We had the exact same board, the exact same options presented to us, and he made the better decisions in this particular play. That can be really comforting when playing a game.
1: Yeah, I think we discussed this also previously, but I totally don't agree with this take at all. You don't? No, just because like, I just don't think that's right. I think that's like, some kind of logical fallacy or something. because Which if part? I the, the fact that like just because we have the same inputs and the same boards that yeah. we have equal luck or whatever, because let's say I start going down one path and, sure. the, and you'd go down different and the cards randomly come out in a way that make it really easy for me to follow my path and not for you, that feels like I still got lucky in the game mm. even though we had the same thing because we didn't know when we took that first pivotal turn what the future, inputs would, what the future yeah. inputs would be. So, I mean, I agree that it can feel that way, but I actually don't think that's correct.
0: I just know when I lose a role in right game, sometimes I feel like, well, I guess I could have done something better this yeah, game than what I totally. did do,
1: whereas I sometimes think I do think that's a part of these games. I just don't think it has to do with the fact that you have shared inputs. inputs. I think that makes it
0: feel more fair, potentially, whereas in a game like, I don't know, poker it can be just Jake just got dealt the better cards. Yeah, Here we're dealt the exact same cards. I should have made a different decision. Uh, it's an
1: interesting. It's an yeah, interesting I case you. for sure. I, I think it's a little more complex than you're giving it credit for. Brennan, let's do our closing thoughts here. And I'm curious after this conversation, you, let's just say, hypothetically, you're going to be the judge of a design contest where people are going to be submitting roll and write game designs. What
0: are you looking for? Oh, gosh. I think that one thing that is really clear about a lot of the standout examples of games in these genre is they really lean in to simple but interesting puzzles so a puzzle that's not too hard to internalize uh, to learn you can make interesting decisions from your first few plays but have uh, a clear sense of what they're trying to accomplish so like the spatial puzzles of cartographers or railroad ink or trails of tukana or these numeric puzzles i think i'd also be excited to see something that just does something totally fresh that's not a Numeric puzzle, or not a spatial puzzle, but it's engaging with a sort of the roll and write genre in a different way, and inviting a new way of of sort of setting up one of these games. That's a a much taller order, especially in trying to do it in a way that is simple. But it's something that's come to mind for me of like, how would I do something that's totally fresh within this space and have it still feel like a roll and write? Totally.
1: I yeah, I, I largely agree with you. I think one thing that I'm interested in seeing is you know our these games at the end of the day, like, are you leaning into the strengths of the genre? Right. I'm, I want to see like a fun riff on a roll and write. I think I'd be less excited to see like a gyro game that has been like cleverly like shoved s- in a roll and write in- box. Exactly. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, uh, making a you know, a different game like that's just like just and just yeah, jamming it into this box. And, you know, and I think a lot of the strengths of this genre is like fun, quick fun, right? Like you yeah. start playing, you're immediately thrown into like the fun puzzle of the game. You know, you kind of can grok it from the beginning. And then, yeah, like, but I'm just totally excited to see, you know, what people come up with and uh, the crev- clever ways that they achieve that. Because there's all kinds of wild stuff going on that I can't wait
0: to try out. Okay, Jake, to close fully, you can play one role and get right game right now. What are you going to, what do you want to play?
1: I think my favorite roll and write game are still the just like classic ones. And I, I, I played quicks a lot. I think the one that might be my favorite is 21 these days, Mm -hmm. even more than quicks,
0: but they're so similar that you can almost like barely uh, see between them. And I've been playing a ton of next station London on board game arena. So I'll, I would, if I was offered the option, I just say, I want to play more next station London right now. Perfect. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the
1: end of this week's episode on the role and write genre. Please join us in our discord to let us know what you think of the conversation uh, and to share your thoughts on it. Also curious about the meta question of, is this what you want out of a sort of mechanic deep dive or like a genre deep dive? So let us know that too, uh, as we start thinking about how we might want to cover other kind of genres of games and mechanics of games in the future on this podcast
0: and then as always thank you to hembry for their intro and outro song reach out uh and then if you want to learn more about our decision space jam as one final reminder just go to decisionspacepodcastcom space slash decision space jam or it's just on the navigation ribbon at the top and until next time see y'all bye y'all